Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and you have found the place where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. And with summer upon us, it is, for me at least, movie season. I've always loved to go out and see films. I've always loved great movies, great storytelling. And uh, for me, summer is especially special because when my kids were young, I would always take them to the drive-ins here near where I live. And we had one of those little red wagons. We would fill it with snacks, called it the snack wagon. So we would drive to the drive-in, pull out the snack wagon, go crazy on snacks. And my kids still remember those those days. Um, and uh, so we actually still have a drive-in available here near where I live in Tennessee. And I'm thrilled because today our, our guest comes to us from Hollywood. Bob Schultz is a writer, producer, and instructor with nearly 20 years of experience in Hollywood. He is also the co-founder of Script Fest and the Great American Pitch Fest which has provided opportunities and education for screenwriters for 15 years and has been rated by Script Magazine as the number one pitch fest and screenwriting conference in the world. Bob's students and clients have gone on to find producers and agents, managers, and to work all over the world. He currently has two spec scripts in active development and is looking forward to this year's Script Fest where he can meet a 1,000 new writers coming up at the end of this month. So, Bob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I think our paths first crossed in Nashville. Last year, there was a um, film festival there, and I was able to sneak into the film festival. There was a writer's conference as well, and I think at one of the um, cocktail parties, we might have met, and I was like, this guy seems like he is passionate about storytelling, and I didn't even know that you were involved with Script Fest at the time when we first met. Yeah, well, you know, any opportunity to go to Nashville is, of course, a, something I leap at. It's a great city, and I, I, I was happy to find a lot of people passionate about storytelling there. Yeah, it was, it was great. And so um, the first thing I have to ask you, with Summer Upon Us, what movies are you looking forward to in the next couple of months? Are there any films that you're like, man, I can't wait to go check this one out? I'll tell you what. I, I try to make it a habit to go to the movies probably three times a week. So I, I think it probably would be easier to <laughs> list the movies that I'm not particularly interested in. Discussing. But, uh, I mean, I, I love the summer movie season. I, uh, I think that it's just so much fun. It just sort of, as you were saying in your intro, sort of brings you back to, to my childhood when, you know, the movies were big and spectacular and sort of overwhelming and, and, you know, the, 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 your, my lips getting all chapped from all the salt and butter on the popcorn. It's like yeah, all these exactly. experiences that are amazing. I, I had a great spring uh, movie season. I love the Fast and the Furious franchise, and that came out. And I think uh, Colossal was a surprisingly deep uh, movie that dealt with some themes that uh, that sort of snuck up on me. That was great. And, and uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy sequel I thought was fantastic. I'll see a lot of the main things this summer, but I think for a lot of people, a lot of Men my age, it's all about December and the next Star Wars movie, which comes out as well. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I uh, I grew up watching uh, Star Trek as a kid and Star Wars. And now, are you one or the other, or are you both? I have to ask. Well, uh, I, I I would say that I'm both, but I also feel like it, you can. There's a there's a quote from a cut scene in Pulp Fiction where uh-huh. um, Uma Thurman says. You can be a Beatles guy, or you can be an Elvis guy, and you can like them both, but at some point you have to make the choice, and who's yours? So I think the same <laughs> thing is true of Star Trek and Star Wars, and I think if I was 
the gun to my head, a blaster to my head, so I had to make a choice, it would be Star Wars probably. And when you said blaster, I think that gave it away, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that's that's cool. And um, I, I should I should also ask you, when you go to see a film, are you able to disappear into it, or are you always analyzing it? Because a lot of your life is spent analyzing and making sure that the stories that are being told are the best possible ones out there. And, oh, cool. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean... It, I'm thrilled by being surprised by a movie, um, which, for example, Colossal did. And I'm, but I tend to be unable. I, I I like to think I can turn off that analytical part of my brain, but right. I think if you talk to my fellow co-founder Signe Olenek, who's gone to the movies with me a few times, she would be the first one to tell you how I can't turn it off because I will always bring my Joseph Campbell structure knowledge to the table, and someone will. So we'll be partway through a movie, and I'll just lean over to her and whisper, that was the refusal of the call to adventure. Right, right. And she'd be like, shut up, I'm watching a movie. You know, so it's, <laughs> so it's hard to turn it off. But, I'll, but you know, you sort of gain an admiration. I think of it as, look, I don't drink a lot of wine, so I respect the opinions of people who are wine connoisseurs and can tell these subtle differences. Sure. And, uh, and so I feel like with movies, it's the same thing with me. I, I just, I don't mind the movies that are just, for fun, I enjoy them quite a lot, and uh, but I also like something that's richer and has a little bit more analytical t- aspect to it as well. You know, when I read novels, um, I actually don't even finish most of the novels I start. I start reading the novel, and and then suddenly I start noticing the characterization is off, the timing, the pacing, whatever. Maybe believability just isn't there, and I, there's just so many good books to read that I just don't even don't even finish some of them. And then there are some where I start reading them. I'm reading The Road by Cormac, uh, Cormac mm. McCarthy right now. And um, and I wasn't a huge fan of the film, but I'm into the story, and I'm not analyzing anything. I, I'm just, like, enjoying the, the story as it goes through. And I remember the first Hunger Games book I read that, and I was like, there's nothing I can see in this book that I would change. Like, it was yeah. really well-crafted. And so any time that I can disappear into a book or a movie when I stop doing that analyzing, that's probably, it's probably a well-told story. Yeah, that's great. I, I'm also always very, speaking of books, very, uh, very I, I, I admire a lot when writers can take nonfiction and make it as engrossing. I've been reading lately uh, a couple of these oral history type books, like the history of Saturday Night Live. There's oh, one. Yeah. There's one about the CAA that just came out, and and the 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 anecdotes that are told are are very short. So it's great. There's always a good place to put in your bookmark if you're reading it on the subway or whatever else, and you can you never know when you're going to have to stop reading. It's, that's the sort of book that it's 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 always engrossing, but you can always have a decent place to stop if you need to do something else. But I mean, and that's a good example, you know, storytelling, whether it's a film, a novel, or even those short anecdotes that you were just referencing. I mean, there's something about them that just grabs our attention, and maybe there's a twist at the end, or there's something humorous or heartwarming or stirring or powerful in that just little short moment that, you know, that that impacts us forever. Um, Yeah, and and I appreciate also, like, a lot of screenplays these days, for example, are – they, they sort of have to presuppose an existing amount of knowledge on the part of the of the reader or the viewer. Yeah. And I think people that do that effectively are people to really admire. I'm thinking in terms of the uh, the People versus O.J. Simpson miniseries from last yeah. year. 
there's nobody who watched that show who doesn't know how it turns out, but it was still very engrossing. Same thing with uh, with Feud, the uh, the miniseries that was just earlier this year. The same kind of thing. Everyone knows that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford hated each other, but you can take that pre-existing knowledge and exploit it to make this story even more interesting and engrossing. I think that's that's a great relationship between writer and reader, as opposed to just the writer writing his thing and just sort of hoping the reader gets it. I think it, that's the relationship has evolved in that way. Yeah, and uh, when you mentioned that, I, re- I remember going to see Titanic back in the day when Titanic first came out, and thinking to myself, "Look, I know I know how this movie ends. The ship sinks, <laughs> right? I'm yeah. like, how's James Cameron going to keep my attention for three hours and forty two minutes when?" I already know the ending, but then you go to see Titanic and you realize it's not a story about the ship sinking. It's a love story. It's a story about, you know, the quest for belonging and freedom and love. And you have Rose who wants to be, you know, with the man that she loves and she wants to be free. She feels trapped. And you have all of those deep, you know, central human emotions. And that's really what drives it. It, Of course, the, the, the ship sinks, but we... We find out that as the movie goes on, that it's it's a much bigger story, and it's so, a very it's a very yeah. intimate story told with a four hundred million dollar budget or whatever it was. Yeah, at the time, yeah. I think wasn't it the biggest budget movie ever at the time? I can't remember. I, it, it was, as I recall, and I think it, you know you have James Cameron's obsession to blame for that. I mean, he literally took a submersible vehicle down to the wreck of the Titanic and then hired the same company that made the dishes for the Titanic to make the dishes for the movie Titanic. I mean, mean, that's going to add a little something to your budget. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. And it was interesting a minute ago when you were listening to some of the films that you've seen recently that you really like. They're kind of sort of the big blockbuster-y, like the Fast and the Furious franchise, for example. Yeah. I mean, some people might say, oh, that's not great storytelling. Now, I always enjoy those flicks. Like, I get into them, and I love the action and the explosions and stuff. And and But I think that some stories work so well on the screen, um, and there are certain movies that come out like, like a Star Wars movie or maybe Wonder Woman or whatever it is, where it's like, or War of the Planet of the Apes, where I'm like, I want to go see that on a big screen. Yeah, someday it'll come to, you know, uh, I can watch it on my, you know, home, you know, te- television or whatever, but, but it's like, there's something huge and epic and powerful about seeing those on the big screen. And, and I think some people miss that, that aspect of it. They're like, well, the plot was this, or the character, there wasn't enough ter- character development. I'm like, but they blew stuff off. <laughs> Well, and it was really amazing. So that I mean, the, the spectacle is part of it. I mean, you were talking about going to the drive-in theaters and and bringing the snack wagon and all that stuff. And that sort of experience that you're describing is like the modern day version of Tom Sawyer. It's like this is how we remember our childhood is often through the movies we we saw. I remember vividly seeing the movie. I think it was an Irwin Allen movie called The Swarm. It was about killer bees. I think I may have seen that. I saw that at a drive-in, and of course, you're at a drive-in movie, so you're outside with the windows down, and it's about killer bees being everywhere. I was hor- terrified. <laughs> Excellent. Like, there are bees it. out there, and, and this is what they're doing to, to Peter, to, uh, uh, this is what they're doing, what was, what's Jane Fonda's father's name? Uh, I think it was Peter Fonda. Yeah, it's, uh, this is what they're doing to Fred McMurray and Fonda. Right, they're right. doing all these guys, and they're going to kill me too. And I think the spectacle, I mean, when you're a kid particularly, I think the stuff you get passionate about is the stuff that makes you say, wow. 
you know, and that, and that sticks with you. And I, in movies and TV do that too. I also think that I really so I wanted to comment on something else you had said um, about the Fast and the Furious franchise. And I think it's true of, okay, let's be honest, maybe not the most nuanced storytelling. Yeah. But then you, the, 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 the people that produce those movies, as well as the writers of movies like, like Breaking Bad, writers of shows like Breaking Bad, um, they tend to really relish the challenge of making a movie, of making the next thing, the next chapter, the next episode, the next movie, even better than the one before. I, uh, so, you know, with Fast and the Furious, with Fast Five, it was we're going to drag a vault through the streets of Rio. Now we're at Fast Eight. It's like, how can we work a submarine into this car movie? <laughs> yeah, you know? and, it's, and to me, it's just amazing they do that. I remember reading an anecdote from The Breaking Bad where it's like, whoever's writing this particular episode would always really, really enjoy leaving a, a cliffhanger that was difficult to get out of so that the person who wrote the next episode had to really stretch their storytelling brains to come up with a creative and interesting solution to it. And as a result, it's one of the most successful shows of all time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I teach on um, writing, um, also storytelling, I kind of talk about these narrative forces that sort of press in on the story. And it's people look at me strange, like, what are you talking about? Well, you have like causality, believability, escalation, tension, voice, all of these things. And it's almost like I've envisioned this big clay ball, and and each one of these is like a person pressing in on it, and it all affects the shape of it so that every shape of every story is going to be a little different because one might give up a little bit of believability, let's say Fast and Furious, for um, for the spectacle, like what what you were saying a minute ago. And so we end up with these different shapes, and... And one of those key factors, one of those key narrative forces is escalation. And, you know, when you mentioned Fast and Furious 5, well, we're going to drag the vault. Well, you've got to escalate it or else it's going to feel like a letdown. And when you start talking about the series of movies, um, just as a series of, of novels, say, um, you have to continue to raise the stakes. People ask me sometimes, well, how come those novels kept getting darker? Or how come the movies in that franchise kept getting darker? And dar-? I'm like... They have to, or yeah. else you're going to think, oh, well, we've been there, done that. You know, it, it's, it's, it's less escalation. Yeah, and I think, I think, for example, tonally, like you're talking about, if you take, for example, um, the Harry Potter franchise, it makes sense that the stories will get more complex and darker as our main characters go move from that innocence of childhood into adulthood and having to take on the responsibility of fighting evil. It, it, it it's yeah, that's a good example. That's one where people were often, uh, you know, often saying it. Oh, how come the Harry Potter, you know, stories had to get so dark and stuff at the end? I'm like, yeah. I'm much darker <laughs> at 46 than I was at six, and I'm sure Harry Potter will be too. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So now, when you're working with um, script writers, or you're teaching script writing and so on, what are some of the, um, I guess I would say, common mistakes that you're you're seeing these days? in what people are producing or writing to send out? Well, I think that uh, a lot of writers, particularly people who are new to writing screenplays specifically, they get, a lot of them get really bogged down in the form and the format, which is, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, very critical. I mean, and you have to appear professional when you're um, submitting your screenplays. But you, I get a lot of questions like, should I, you know, 
should I make this two paragraphs or one paragraph, or should I use intercut between these scenes, or what should this slug line say, or whatever. And it's difficult to convince them to focus on telling an engaging story. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's it it's it's a business, and it's very analytical in so far as budgets and what you can get made at, at certain points in your career and so on. But it's also born out of passion. I mean, you can write the best story ever, and if you have a period or two out of place, people are still going to buy the script. Um, so they get yeah, bogged down in the yeah. form. I think they also get bogged down in nitty-gritty details that might work in a novel but don't necessarily work in a screenplay. You don't have to – the scene doesn't have to read like this. Hey, Joe, let's go to the store. Joe and Bob leave the house, exterior. Joe and Bob get in the car, exterior. Bob and Joe drive to the store, exterior. Bob and Joe walk through the parking lot, interior. Bob and Joe enter the store. Right. Like right. All, all those interim things bog down a movie and they make it slow and sluggish. You can jump straight from, hey, let's go to the store, cut to the store. Right. And, right. So I think that a lot of writers just sort of want to, they, they grasp at realism so tightly that they wind up, I mean, if I wanted to see real life, I live real life every day. If I'm seeing a movie, it's, I, I, want to see the, I want to see the story as it unfolds, and you can leave out the other details. I think it's the same with, with writers sometimes when they're doing a proposal, say, for a new book series or something like that. Well, I'll say writers. I'll say novelists in, in this yeah. case because we're all writers. But, but, um, but they'll, you know, they'll be honing it, honing and trying to get the, the hook right in the first 20 pages. And, and I'm like, look, they're not going to worry about if you miss a comma on page 19 if they're so engrossed in it because it's such, such poignant storytelling that they're just flipping through the pages, you know. That they they can't wait to get to the end and yeah and I also, writers yeah. writers of screenplays anyway also tend to have a lot of problems with uh, with act two I mean if you think of a three act structure it's uh, it's difficult I, I always say act two is where great scripts go to die because when you imagine what you're going to write you know how it's going to start you always know who your character you you typically know who your characters are and how you're going to introduce them and then you know how it's going to end you know what the big finale is going to be. But getting from point A to point B is quite often a me- meander. They're like, well, I know it has to be around 90 pages, so I just got to fill in the space. And you wind up with a movie where just a bunch of random stuff happens instead of a driving narrative momentum that I think is critical. Do you feel like to get through that, that people will sometimes call it the long second act or the sag in the middle or whatever they want to call it. Do yeah. you feel like sometimes just splitting that up and having it say four acts or maybe even a five act play can sometimes, or a, a screen, a screenplay or whatever, can sometimes solve that problem? Or do you feel like pretty, pretty tied into the three act structure approach? Well, I mean, there are a lot of, there are some structured instructors who teach Act 2 as like 2A and 2B. I don't know uh-huh. why they don't call it four-act structure. They call it three-act, but they split Act 2 into two pieces. Right, right. I, I think that's just – I don't know why that is. It's just popular opinion right now, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I tend to cut down my Act 2s into even smaller chunks. I, yeah. I, I was working with uh, the Asylum for a while on something, and they uh, – they do. Um, they did. They do Sharknado and all that kind of movie. Oh, sure, yeah. And uh, so I was working with them on something, and they say they, their their policy was 
an, an action scene or something exciting has to happen every seven pages because that's roughly when commercial breaks are going to come and you want to keep people through the commercial so you set up something on page 14 and then you resolve it at the bottom of page 14, that kind of thing, so that every seven minutes something interesting is happening. Yeah. So, you're always, so instead of sort of meandering through Act 2, I'm always working towards the next big set piece every seven pages, so it never really has a chance to slow down. Yeah. So that's sort of the strategy I use. Even if I'm not working with Asylum now, it's like you want, to keep, you want people to keep reading, and you have to remember that these readers at the studios whose job it is to decide what scripts move forward have to read 100 scripts a day. So if they get bored for one second, they're going to throw yours aside and pick up the next one just to get through their pile. Yeah, it's, you know, and I um, I did a book called Story Trump's Structure, and it was like on how to write unforgettable fiction by breaking the rules. And, you know, I have nothing against if people do three acts or four acts or five. It doesn't really matter to me. What matters is, you know, are you grabbing us with um, a character who's remarkable, unique, memorable in some way? Is he struggling through? Is he, you know, facing the setbacks? And is it escalating? Um, and are there twists and turns, pivots in the plot that you don't expect, but when they come, right. you're, you know, satisfied. And, and so as you build the story that way, you know, when I, when I write, I, I, I never know how one of my novels will end when I start writing it. Now, eventually, it comes to me as I work on it, but, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I agree that the, this whole thing of tying it in specifically, it has to be three acts or, or we're going to have, act, you know, 2A and 2B and stuff like this. What matters the most is you grab people and you engage yeah. them. Because, I mean, no, no one watching a movie, or, um, or except for maybe you or Signe or maybe me, will say, ah, no, there's the denouement of Act 2 or whatever, now we're escalating, or you know what I mean? It's like right. nobody cares about that. They just want a story, you know, to yeah, be I told. Think, well, I, think, I, think they, I think people don't necessarily think of it in terms of, this act didn't work or this or you know act one was sluggish or whatever right. but i do think that they perceive it and they just don't know how to put words to it it's like something just didn't work for me yeah. i think you hear a lot of yeah. people say yeah and uh, and a good script analyst or a good movie critic or someone or a, particularly a great editor can say well if we move if we remove this scene everything in the whole rest of the movie is going to work and then magically it does i think some of these movie editors are magic magicians but they uh so it's it, like being able to perceive the problem and being able to identify the problem aren't necessarily the same thing, but I do believe that uh, often people will, you know, fans of movies will say, you know, this particular thing didn't really work for me. And if I say, what well, do you think it could have been because of this? They say, you know what, that actually does make sense. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know, these are, these are the same people who like, look, I can analyze a story and a dentist can fix my teeth. I would never presume to fix my own teeth, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's like it's just a different skill set, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you were mentioning earlier some of the you know television series that you've you've caught recently, and it seems to me that sort of long form storytelling now with Netflix, Amazon Prime, some Hulu, some some of these like True Detective or others, where mm-hmm. you don't try and solve a crime every episode or yeah. you know every forty four minutes or something. Instead. Um, you know, uh, let's see, what's another one? The Night of, you know, and yeah. uh, I think it was at um, HBO, I think, did a night, The Night of. Yeah, that was so Turturro in it, right? John Turturro? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so you have, you know, this long, uh, these long-form storytelling that 
I don't even know if they think in terms of acts. Who knows? But but it's gripping and powerful, and more and more shows are moving to this format. I think it's great. I mean, to me, I love it because I love a gripping story. And I feel like some people have said this is the golden age of television. I kind of I kind of think I agree. I I agree too. I mean, we're still pretty we're, we're pretty close to the situation, so that it's, it's difficult to get any real like long term perspective on it. But I yeah. mean. There's some amazing things that are happening. I think that even more important to me than act structure, much more important to me, in fact, is just like significant setups and payoffs. Yeah. And with this long-form television, I think they're doing a lot of that. I mean, I would go back to The Sopranos to see something that was really, really working that way, and The Wire probably made it even better. But just try to get me to stop watching a season of Fargo once I started it. Yeah, I I watch I put on I'm like okay season one episode one I like the movie let's see what this pilot's like and then twelve hours later I stumble out of my uh, stumble <laughs> out of my room with you know like with half a beard I'm like what happened <laughs> you know, where'd the time go? But um, you know uh, I, I can't remember I was at an event one time and someone was talking about even like comic books uh, and comic book stories and they were saying you know in the history of the world. The longest form storytelling ever is comic books. And I was like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And then I started thinking about it. You're right. Some of these storylines and worlds have been built up over, what, 60, 70 years. Yeah. And you have people, you know, you still have new twists. You still have new, um, you know, directions for stories to go. I know Captain America, they're going to say, oh, by the way, he was really... Um, a double agent all along. All the gonna, time, yeah. You know, all the time, like, what? You can't do that to Captain America. <laughs> and then they asked Stan Lee about it, and he's like, I'll be interested to see where this goes. And I thought, that's the right attitude, you know what I mean? Instead of yeah. say, oh, no, it's like, he just loves stories. So he's like, well, let's see what happens. You know, maybe, maybe it'll be something interesting. And Well, the stuff that uh, Alan Moore was working on in the 80s, I think, really changed the world of comic books a lot. If you, if, I mean, I think the movie was a moderate success as far as artistic questions are concerned, but if you were to read the comic book for Watchmen, which was a 12-issue limited series uh, back in, I, th- I want to say, 86, and it's available at a trade paperback now, but so you get all the issues at once, but there is stuff that is set up early that pays off late, and you have to remember, these issues came out one a month, so we're talking about a payoff that comes a year after the setup happened in, in real-world terms, and... He also was very clever about using the artwork to convey the world as well. It's a world where genetic manipulation is part of reality, and then you can see a scene in a restaurant where the waiter is serving a chicken that has three legs because there are three kids at the table. And, and so it's like, so this is, this is something that would happen to the world. Someone would market this ability to have as many drumsticks as you want so that no kid goes disappointed. <laughs> and that's not even a plot point. It's just it's there in the artwork in the background so that yeah. if you're looking, like, it, it, rewards, it rewards the discerning viewer for taking the time to observe it. And I think that, that the comic book forum has really matured a lot in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I remember. Did it? It won some, not a National Book Award, and it wasn't a Pulitzer, I don't think, but, yeah, Watchmen won something, and someone's going to say, Steve, of course, you should have known, but off the top of my head, I can't remember, but I do I want to say it won an Eisner Award, but I think, but there was a, there was a comic book called Mouse, M-A-U-S, which was a, 
a story about it was a, it was a Holocaust story, and the the mice were the Jews and the cats were the Nazis, and it was and that won a Pulitzer. Huh. I mean, a, yeah. com- a, a comic book winning a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, people still, I think, sort of dismiss the form as being very childish. But I mean, it's 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 really expanded to include adults and children and, and people of all different races and economic backgrounds and countries. And it, it's it's amazing how it's 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 sort of a universal kind of kind of storytelling technique. The comic book these days. Yeah, I like I, I like that whole idea of setups and payoffs. I think of it in terms of promises and payoffs. It's just sort of the same thing. It's just different language, but we come sometimes make an explicit promise, and sometimes we imply the promises. But um, people sometimes say, "What are you talking about when you when you mean all that?" And I mean, you could make it as simple as saying, "I'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock for the meeting." Uh, there's a yeah. promise. You know, we know that there's going to be a meeting or something's going to happen, that there's not going to be a meeting, or but we have something to look forward to. The other kind of promise you can make is is when we're writing a novel, through magnitude or specificity, we bring something to the forefront. Maybe we spend three paragraphs describing an old house. Well, that house better have something significant coming up. The readers right. are going to be like, what was the deal with the house? Like, why do you spend so much time with the house? And in film, of course, they do it, you know, through camera angles and close-ups where, oh, you see this gun and it lingers, you know, on the gun, yeah. on the wall for just a couple seconds. Like, oh, that gun, something's going to happen. It's a promise. And I, if, I, if we, yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, if we don't pay it off, no one, you know, no one is happy. It's like... Because we've made a we we've made this kind of contract with the reader with the with the you know the audience that this is going to be significant and important and and we have to pay it off. And the audience will let you get away with anything as long as you don't violate that trust. You set up the rules of the world, and then you follow those rules. I always think about speaking of setups and payoffs. Whenever I think about this, or I use this as an example with my students, there's a scene from The Simpsons where. <clears throat> The, the kids are watching a cartoon on the show, and, and Itchy and Scratchy are driving to the fireworks factory. And so, like, every time, here comes the fireworks factory. So, of course, they're building up to this huge, like, gigantic, huge explosion yeah. at the fireworks factory. So everything's going to be great. But, like, instead they keep on extending the scene, and it's like, you know, oh, we're going to stop here. We're going to meet this guy or this thing. And then finally Milhouse just yells out, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? And it's, <laughs> And it, I, I always say, like, don't promise a fireworks factory explosion unless you intend to deliver a fireworks factory explosion. And uh, a, a lot of, particularly my younger students, are like, oh, he speaks my language. He speaks The Simpsons. I understand what he's talking about. Um, yeah, no, but it's, uh, yeah, but it's, silly. yeah, but but like the the, the payoff is, and, and people always think in terms of don't set something up without paying it off. But the reverse is also true. If your payoff, if your big finale is unsatisfying. Very often it's because Act 1 didn't do the proper work setting it up so that you're anticipating it. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because it, the climax is the, is the scene where you want the least amount of coincidence. I mean, you don't want someone suddenly showing up and solving all the problems and then, you know, taking off. You want the main character, the protagonist, whatever you want to call him, you want him to have to tackle it, to make a choice, to make a sacrifice, to solve the problem. And And yet, you watch movies, you read novels, and there is coincidence. Well, you remove coincidence through foreshadowing. And so exactly what you just said is that climax, that moment has to be foreshadowed or promised in some way. And then 
by doing that, we remove the coincidence, and we also help those people, you know, people's expectations build up and build up toward it. And and um, I've had, you know, I've read some books, I've seen some films where here comes the climax, and you're thinking, well, everything is slowed down because they're taking all this time to set it up now. You should have set it up fifty, right. you know, hundred pages ago, or you know, twenty minutes ago in the movie. And yeah, somebody smarter than I am once said. A good ending has to seem both inevitable and surprising. Yep, exactly. And uh, and so I think it was actually in Poetics. I think Aristotle actually said that in some well, translation. He's much smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he's he's been around a few years longer, but it's, it's <laughs> yeah. I think that's what, at the core. That's at the key of a great twist. It also it also provides for you know the avenue for escalation. A great twist does. And yeah. Um, so, so Script Fest is coming up, and tell us just a little bit about Script Fest, Pitch Fest, kind of how how that works out. Because I know a lot of the I know a lot of our people who are listening um, are fans of movies, and very very often they're writers or or you know aspiring screenwriters. Sure. Well, Script Fest it's an annual uh, screenwriting conference and convention. This is going to be our fourteenth one this year. We uh, we believe Sydney and I both believe that. Improving spec screenwriting over the large scale will improve opportunities for spec screenwriters individually. So we offer a full day, two full, two, two full days actually this year, of classes and panels which help writers with their careers. So we will have classes on how to have, you know, how to have a powerful act three or, or what's, what's good story structure. We'll do character art classes and we do theme classes. We do more practical classes as well, like, you know, what your legal rights are as a writer and so on. And then on top of that, we have, since we're fortunate enough to do our event in LA, we have access to a lot of actual working writers. So this year, for example, we have Steve Odekirk who wrote, uh, Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, and he wrote Kung Palette the Fist, so he's a comedy writer. We have uh, Dustin Lance Black, who won the Oscar for Milk. We have um, several oh, no. writers from TV shows for our TV panel, since TV is so popular. Our writers from some of the CSI series and BoJack Horseman, and so whether it's straight up or straight up uh, traditional network television, or something more edgy, which you can see on on Netflix or, or Amazon Prime, we try, we try to give our aspiring writers access to all this sort of person because there's no one better to teach you than those who have been where you are and have advanced beyond that. On top of yeah, that, we have, we have pitching available. We have more than 100 companies come in every year, more than 120 typically come in every year, and they, and they hear five-minute pitches from our writers all day long on the Sunday of the weekend. So People come, they bring their script ideas, they bring their, their scripts. I mean, they bring knowledge of their scripts. You don't have to actually carry a physical copy of your script. Sure. And you sit down with producers and agents and managers and basically give them five minutes. You say, you know, here's what it's about, and they say, tell me more, or they say, not for us, and then you continue those meetings, and you have five-minute meetings all day long. Most people get between 20 and 25 pitches over the course of the weekend and sort of start to build that professional network that's so important in an in industry built on relationships. Yeah, that's I love it, and I love how you said you know built-in relationships because we're not here to use people; we're just here to, you know, get to c- connect with them and then see where the future, you know, leads. And um, I'll be leading one panel discussion with um, Chad and Carrie Hayes, who wrote The Conjuring, and 
yes. some of those movies as well. And then I'll be doing a, um, a seminar on twists, just what we were talking about a minute ago, how to yeah. how to create great twists. And, uh, I'm, man, I'm really looking forward to coming. And So give, give us a hint. Let's say that um, maybe I'm coming or I have a script to pitch. What are a couple of the secrets to you know, a successful pitch of an idea? It's, uh, it's almost like, it's almost like dating, you know, you, you, <laughs> you, you sort of need to, like, look, we're at, the events in Los Angeles, the events in, Hall, in Burbank, and so if I want to produce a screenplay and I don't have a script to produce, all I need to do is walk into one of the 7,000 Starbucks in town and say who has a screenplay, and everybody at every table, as well as the baristas and probably the other customers, are all going to say, "I have one." <laughs> right. So you can ha- you can call an Uber, and when the guy pulls up, just say, "Can I have your screenplay?" And he'll have one available for you. So, <laughs> so it's it's not merely a question of being an excellent writer. That's of course a very big component of it, but it's also a question of being a good and engaging sort of personality. You you want. You want someone to think, this is the person I want on my team. Yeah. I'm fond of saying I'd rather get a script that's a 7 out of 10 and a writer that's a 10 out of 10 than a script that's a 10 and a writer that's a 7 because scripts can be rewritten and people can't. So I like we, it. That's good. Yeah. So the, the, the trick is to be concise, be professional, be personable. And whatever you do, if you have a five-minute meeting, do not spend five minutes talking. No one enjoys hearing about anything for five straight minutes. I try to keep my initial pitch, the the beginning of my pitch, where I sort of introduce the story, as brief as possible in order to to launch a conversation. The most successful pitch I ever had was ten words long. And people would, and that would get people engaged. They start asking questions, and then that's where my knowledge of structure and character and something really came in handy. Because when they're asking questions, I can answer them in a professional way. Yeah, you know, years ago, one of my novels was optioned by ABC Studios, and um, when I went into at the time it was an Endeavor. Now I think it's William Morris and Endeavor, but mm-hmm. I went in to meet with uh, their agent who worked on novels or books to film. And um, so I walked in, and um, I mean, out the window, I saw the big Hollywood sign. I'm just like, I'm out of my league here. Like, I have no idea <laughs> what's going on. So I walk in, great, you know, great guy. He introduced himself, and and I say hi, and and then he just looks at me and he goes, go. Yeah. And that was it for me to do a pitch, and I was like, and I said, all right. Um, my main character, Patrick Bowers, doesn't look for means, motive, opportunity, hates profiling, has nothing to do with DNA, and he's one of the best investigators in the world. And he looked at me and he goes, well, what the hell does he do? I was like, glad you asked. And then I could sit down. As soon as they're asking questions, that means they're interested. Yeah, and then I could sit down and tell him about this character, and and he picked up the, the you know, he picked me up, and he's still my agent, film agent, and and uh, we ended up having that one series be optioned. But it was, like what you said, it was like a 10, yours was a 10-word pitch. All I did was tell him what my guy doesn't do. Because yeah. that was what every other TV show at the time, every other crime show was doing. And um, it was either DNA or means, motive, opportunity, or profiling. It was just, that's it. That's all that yeah. what there was. And that's great. So, you subverted expectations and, and got him interested. If you had, sat, if you had, had a... 
10-page speech written and you sat down and just read off the page, I'm sure you'd have been ushered out the door just because it wouldn't have engaged him, even if all your elements were strong. Yeah. So I think uh, I like that, that what you say is be you know, be professional, be prepared, and I think, you know, you also said be be concise and listen to what they had to say. And there was one time I was pitching an idea, and I was just going on, and my agent was like, okay, 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 wait, wait, stop. And I was like, oh, crap, he hates it. And he goes, I love it. And I was like, oh, he loves it, you know. <laughs> but and then you want, then you want to run was, away. It's like, I got him. So, you know, I don't want to screw it up now. Yeah, I mean, I was just going on, and I'm still trying to sell it. And he's like, no, this is, this is I love it. Yeah, I was like, oh, but I wasn't stopping to listen. That that's you know, it's key. It's so it's so critical to listen. That's such a good point because you need to be able to. Because if they start asking questions, it's because they're telling you what is important to them. As important as Joseph Campbell's structure is to me, this guy across the desk might not care one way or the other about it. But if he says, yeah. "Tell me about the love story aspect," well, then that's what's important to him. So that's what I should be focusing on. He's the He's the client in this case if you're trying to pitch somebody, you know, and the customer is always right. So let's say that um, I'm somebody who has either an idea or I come to um, Pitch Fest or Script Fest and, and I'm like, I have this amazing idea for a new TV series or something. What, kind of talk through for a minute just the process of what, from that idea to getting something actually on a television or on a movie screen. What are kind of the steps for someone who's maybe like who's not familiar with the business? What what are the steps or the gatekeepers that it has to go through? Well, I mean, I, it's going to feel like I'm ducking your question a little bit, but the reality is, I think there are as many paths to success as there have been success stories. I think everyone's different. Yeah. But but generally speaking, it's just like anything else. You play up your strengths and you try to offset your weaknesses. Now, if you're talking about television. For example, I get the question a lot, do I have to move to L.A. in order to be a writer? And I always say, well, if you, not if you're writing features, but if you're, watching, if you're writing TV, that means you're part of a writer's room, which means you show up for work every day. It's mm. an office job. So, so, it's, uh, so that's why it could be different for each thing for the hoops that it sure, has to jump sure. through. But my advice to anybody, general advice, is can always continuously be writing and always, if possible, be producing more than just writing. I mean, if you can write a short film that you can shoot yourself and put it on YouTube as a calling card, or you can, or you know, you can shoot with other with other friends or whatever. I think yeah. that's important. But otherwise, also, always just be writing. It's it's much easier to steer a ship that's already in motion than to start one from a dead stop. And so you don't want to chase trends. You want to write stuff that works for you and that, and that speaks to you so that you're passionate about it. But at that point, once you finish a script, then it becomes about that uh, professional network we were talking about. Right. Writing is very, very solitary, but filmmaking is extraordinarily collaborative. And so you need to start building a team of people who are going to see things the same way you do. And the time to start building that team is now. The best time to start building, what's the old saying about planting a tree? The best time to start building your professional network is 10 years ago. The second best time is right away. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so you're going, to need, you're going to want people around you who you trust, whose opinion you trust on whether the script is good. Don't just give it to your mom and hope that she says it's great. Um, and you want to work with people who see things creatively the same way you do. And it's no longer prohibitive, cost prohibitive for people to shoot their own shorts. A couple years back, 
the short Tangerine was nominated for an Oscar and it was shot all on iPhones. Really? So yeah, so it's uh you you don't need to think in terms of well I need to raise a hundred thousand dollars in order to shoot my five minutes. You can if you can write well, you can get five minutes out I mean, my dinner with Andre was an entire play of two people eating dinner. Hmm. You know, it's so you can you can be engaging in a way, just as a calling card, as an audition piece, essentially, that tells people that you can tell a story concisely yeah. and, and interestingly, and that helps. But really, getting building up people, surrounding yourself with people who can raise your game and whose game you could raise both is the key to success in probably in anything, in, in everything from marriage to business, but it's, uh, it's really critical in the film industry in particular. Yeah, and a great place to do that is the end of this month at Scriptfest and Pitchfest. What a coincidence it is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> so, um, so tell us, let's, let's see, how do we either sign up or where's the best place online to go to get information? Uh, the best place is scriptfest.com. That's scriptfest, like scriptfestival.com. Uh, we have the latest schedule and who the executives are who are coming here, pitches and all that stuff there. Some, some blogs that will help you with your writing as well. If people have specific questions, anyone is welcome to write uh, write me at bob at scriptfest dot com, and I'll be happy to uh, answer your questions. I love interacting with the other writers; it's my favorite part of the job. And um, you know, listening to podcasts like this one is also a great way. We we try to get the word out everywhere we possibly can. Now, um, before we close up here, you have to tell me what is what would you say is a movie that made you, um, I don't know how to say, like, um, that made you love movies. Do you have one that when you saw it, you were like, this has changed everything? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll name a few. I'll name three. Yeah. If that's all right. Uh, Dawn of the Dead, George Romero's Dawn, Dawn of the Dead. Um, excuse me. Yeah, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, the one where they were in the mall. Yeah. Uh, I... Love that one because it showed me that horror movies can be more than just splatter and gory stuff. I mean, he, it, it has, of course, it has those jumps and those horror elements, which are really fun. But at the same time, I really believe Romero was making a statement when he said, when his zombies like sort of stripped people down to their fundamental animalistic, ego-free states. And then has them all shamble mindlessly to the mall. I think, <laughs> I think he had something. I think he was really saying something, and it sort of taught me that even if you want your writing to be powerful and to convey a very important message, you need to think of it like when you have to give your dog a pill and you have to like wrap it in bread to, in order for him to swallow it. The message is the pill, and the bread is the fun stuff that sort of gets people to actually be willing to accept your message. That's interesting. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I would say Star Wars, of course. I mean, seeing that giant Star Destroyer come from above the screen the first time. I mean, I had two of those spectacle moments. I had Star Wars and then Alien also. I was so terrified of Alien, and I wanted to go back for more. Never before in my life when I was eight years old or whatever did I think in terms of, that is so scary, I have to see it again. But the one that I think that I would have to sign it off to, it's... You know, it's, I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie anymore, but it's certainly in my top ten. Would be Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Um, that movie, which also, as it turns out, has one of my favorite pitches of all time. They pitched it as uh, Moby Dick in outer space from the point of view of the whale. <laughs> Are you kidding? 
No, it is like, and then when you look at it, it's like, of course, Kirk is being pursued by this antagonist who, with whose thirst for vengeance, ultimately brings him down. You know, it's it's, uh, it's got a lot of the same themes as Moby Dick, and it's classic in that way. And I love that's the, great. Huh? Yeah, and and I mean, and that movie just blew my like everything about that movie in my mind is perfect. And I don't know if it's and, and I think it stands perfectly on its own, but also it benefited from lowered expectations because Star Trek the Motion Picture didn't do particularly well. And then this one comes out, and I'm like, wow, this is incredible. That's the movie that made me go back and make sure I saw every episode of Star Trek and made me watch all of The Next Generation. It just got me into the whole Trek thing. So I would say that that – plus, you know, I, hey, my degree's in English literature. The fact that you can reference Moby Dick and spaceships is, like, made, is fantastic to me. <laughs> well, Bob, that's a great place to, to close up. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciated um, – you know the insights that you had, not you know, not just about um, maybe the structure of stories, but also just the passion that you have for a well-told story. Thank um, you so much. It, I, yeah, I mean, stories are the one thing that every civilization of humanity has ever had in common. And religions are built on stories, and wars are fought over stories. It, it, to me, it's like the most important thing we do, and as as a species. And I think that it's completely fantastic and i love the opportunity to talk about it so thank you so much for having me yeah it was great um for information about my novel intensive retreats you can click to novelwritingintensive.com and my book every deadly kiss is now available for pre-order it releases july 4th of course i'll be at script fest so i'd love to meet anybody who who comes and shows up and that'll be at the end of june the 23rd and the 24th and the 25th of June. And to check out more of our podcasts and, and programs, click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.